our biggest longing is also our biggest fear. We all are longing for those friends that you can sit around and be fully yourself, no judgments. But we are also afraid of what could happen. And we'll never find out till we put ourselves out there. And that realization came for me when I decided to speak out about my trauma of being a sexual assaulted as an 11-year-old. My first biggest fear was, oh Lord, what will Rwandans say? Hey, Jay Tessie here. Thanks for tuning in to IPU Podcast. IPU stands for Immigrants Pursuit of Munezero, and that is Kenyonda Word for Happiness. Here at IPU, we love to showcase emerging and established business owners, philanthropists, as well as influencers from the African diaspora. If you tuned in looking for inspiration, you came to the right place. Hello there, beautiful people. As we all know, May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and we have our favorite therapist with us. Welcome to the show, Dr. Tabby. Not doctor yet, but doctor thank in you. the making. You're working towards it. From your mouth to God's ears. <laughs> Welcome. Welcome back. Thank you. Good to be back. How's it going? It is going. Busy as ever. Are you guys busy since, you know, um with with May being mental health awareness month? Are you doing a lot of speaking engagements about it? Um, not me personally. Right now I am focusing on school for the summer. But I am sure a lot of people are, and I'm more excited about my people in Rwanda finally starting this conversation on a public platform. So yay, kudos to to those who started this conversation on Twitter. Well, before we dive in, um, for people that are listening to us for the first time, tell us a little bit about you and what makes you qualify to speak about this topic. So yes, for those who don't know me... Um, I am Judy's sister, and that gives me all the qualification. Oh, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I don't have any money for you, Tabby. <laughs> no, so seriously, um, I from day one, I never thought of doing anything else. I've always wanted to do psychology. And that first time happened in high school, Niles High School, shout out, Vikings. Um, I was in class. And that was the first time I heard about the concept of healing the mind. And being Rwandan, I knew that trauma we had had from a genocide, and it was a new concept to me. Since that class, I have never changed my major. So I went to school for psychology in undergrad, got my master's in clinical psychology, moved to Rwanda and worked for a year with uh, victims of the genocide who were sexually assaulted in addition. And... Unfortunately, my mom passed away, had to move back to the United States, and I have worked with crisis services at a community mental health since then in dealing with clients, all ages, all backgrounds, all mental illnesses who are who have attempted, are thinking about it, um, who have attempted suicide. So I've always been on the crisis line, and I enjoy that work to see somebody change their life, at least get a second chance at life. So now I'm also working on my doctorate in clinical psychology still, and trauma is my specialty, so that's why I'm here. Wow. Um, it That's crazy how, like, just hearing the stories that you have on a daily basis about trauma patients, I'm exhausted. I'm Like, I already have, I'm mentally exhausted. I get anxiety from listening to it and everything else, and to think that that actually excites you and that's, that's what motivates you, it's... It's so funny how different minds work. But thank you for letting us know what qualifies you to talk about this. Um, now, mental health is something that we don't talk about in the African family or immigrants as a whole. Black community, period. Yes. I feel like it's like a taboo subject. We don't talk about it. If somebody in the family has any type of mental illness, it's almost like they're the families are shamed and they try to hide them. Why is that? Where do I come from? Oh, that's a loaded question. Cause <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's all different reasons why. But um, I think, one, it's misunderstood. And if we were to break it down in different cultures, like African-American history, there was a mistrust in the community of doctors or 
mental health providers, it was back then mainly it was white people mm-hmm. who do not really understand black culture, who don't understand our um, issues. And so it was difficult for them to get help even when they knew it was needed. Um, with slavery and all that, that's a lot of trauma that keeps being transferred from one generation to another, but yet not talked about. And a bigger reason is survival. I think that could be taken across. So we're also not talking about chronic mental illness, because if we're thinking about our culture in Rwanda or Africa, really the whole continent, um, when it's chronic mental illness, most people did not know what to do with that. And the language around it was stigmatized from day one. That's why they call somebody crazy. Um, and it's either hospitalization. So I don't want to get into a deep history from even in the Western world. Anybody with chronic mental illness such as schizophrenia, um, they used to be locked away mm-hmm. in an institution for till death, really. And that has been changed over time where now there is medications and their goal is to be brought back into community and to survive. So the, the biggest reason, I think, is the misunderstanding of what mental illness is or what it looks like. Number two is survival, where they have other issues that seem bigger than mental illness at the time. So if we're thinking about poverty, if I didn't have something to eat, I'm not going to look at my depression first basic needs come first. And that was an issue that I saw a lot in Rwanda. Um, There is community-based and faith. I think a lot of time faith gets in the way of getting treatment where because they don't understand the biology behind it, most people think we'll pray about it and the sadness will go away. Um, Not understanding that this is beyond sadness or this is beyond until someone is on the verge of suicide or Um, hallucinations and delusions most people think it's something they control and so we think we can just pray about it and it'll go away and also in a lot of African cultures they would consider it witchcraft because they didn't understand the neuropsych behind mental illness so they say okay that person was um, was voodoo or they're not praying hard enough so yeah it's a lot (laughs) <laughs> Sorry. Wow. That's a no, but <laughs> I'm glad we're talking about it because especially with let's focus on depression for a little bit. Yeah. That's always a disease that I know growing up, people used to be like, Oh, that's white people stuff. You know, that's white people problems. Yes. Like, they just have way too much, they don't know what to do with it, so they just start finding problems where there are no problems. Or, you know, and for the longest I, for myself, I honestly thought that is a white person disease only white people <laughs> you know what i'm saying because black people were were raised to to know how strong we are yep. especially black women it's almost like it's an obligation to be strong mm-hmm. you you don't have permission to cry or complain about your situation you just push through no matter how hard things get yes so i think coming from that that the expectation of that if you allowed yourself to say, oh, I'm sad and I'm not really sure why, you're failing. It's almost like mm-hmm. you're failing at mm-hmm. life. People with mental illness feel like failures, mm-hmm. especially in the black community, mm-hmm. because we don't really, we don't have the support. Right. Um, With depression, educate us a little bit the difference. Is there situational depression versus chronic? And what is the difference? Is there a difference? Yes. So with depression, I think that's where, and I think the main reason they consider it a white people problem, Mm -hmm. it's because they have language for it. And even in therapy, when a black person comes in, they use totally different language than a white person when they're explaining what their symptoms are. Mm -hmm. Black people, culturally, they've been taught you are strong. You can get through anything. You can pray about it. We, we do have community, um, and when they come in, by the, time, by the time they seek help, usually it's when it's beyond. And they will use words such as, I am just sick and tired of being sick and tired. 
I don't know what's happening, I'm not getting out of bed. They will usually focus on the symptoms that stop them from being productive. Mm -hmm. That's when they know they need help, not necessarily because of their feelings. A lot of times we're not in tune with our feelings because we consider that a luxury. Ain't nobody got time for that. <laughs> right. <laughs> I have to hustle. <laughs> Get out of your feelings. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> that is our language, right? So we've never created space for anyone to mm. say, "Where? how am I feeling? Like, no. You need to go wow. out and work. Get a paycheck. I never actually paid attention to that. Yeah. Because you never to express yourself. Like, child, please. Right. You know? Okay. You're getting spoiled. Like, yeah. Keep it moving. So when they, when they can no longer keep it moving, that's when they're like, all right, maybe I need something. Mm. Um, and they will usually go to a medical doctor first. Okay. Because we consider physical issues first. And we never think mental illness affects us. Like we don't have brains or right. neurotransmitters like the rest of the world. Um, so to answer a question, depression. You could get depressed after a situation, such as grief. Mm-hmm. And the DSM defines all those differently. So if you lose somebody you love, it is natural and normal to go through some kind of depression while you're grieving. Mm-hmm. It is considered clinical once it's past six months. And you meet criteria by at least um, six of the symptoms that are listed. Mm-hmm. You know, you have the fatigue, you have the... Uh, the sadness, you low, you can't you know sleep or eating, all those uh, appetite they're all thrown off. So once it goes past the six month period and nothing is changing, and some people they of course everyone is different, so some will have the suicidal ideations, sometimes even attempts. Um, if you don't get help, obviously it's gonna get worse. Mm-hmm. So there are those differences. And sometimes if it's because of a situation such as a really bad breakup, a divorce, uh, a loss, sometimes you will get the resources or the coping skills necessary to bounce back after you process and deal with what that situation is. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's a biological issue where you you know, you have neurotransmitters that are responsible for your mood that most of us don't even think about because we're normal with quotation. Quote, unquote. Mm -hmm. Um, You got your dopamine, your serotonin. You have all these neurotransmitters at work. And sometimes they stop or they don't work the way they should. Some are more than you need or less than you need. Same way as a diabetic. Mm -hmm. Most of us don't even think about what kind, how much sugar we're our intake is we don't our bodies do this naturally so somebody needs insulin but you'll never hear anyone tell a diabetic to walk it off why are you not well, you know <laughs> like come on figure it out suck Just it up buttercup. suck it up mm-hmm. it's all no and that's that's really why mental illness is tricky people don't see that there are no sometimes physical symptoms that show the world this is happening. Something tangible that... Yes, mm-hmm. um, uh, until it's to the extreme of somebody trying to take their lives. And some people do take their lives successfully, unfortunately, mm-hmm. because they didn't have an outlet or because of the stigma attached to it. So, yes, you could have it at all different levels based on your situation. Um, there, there is a genetic component. We always ask if it runs in your family. If you've had parents or grandparents who have had depression, it's very likely that you might. Mm. Um, yeah. Hmm. I'm learning so much. Um, so in our families, African families, how do we break that? You know, I mean, it's been passed down for so long, generation after generation. Mm-hmm. We you, Nobody talks about mental illness. How do we start that conversation with our parents? I think we start by educating one ourselves, then them. And, of course, they have to be willing to listen. And we know in our cultures, usually, <laughs> oh, so now they went to school, they think they're smarter <laughs> than us. <laughs> but really, to be serious, this is a matter of life and death. And even suicide is stigmatized in our communities. Mm-hmm. Where I've heard in places like Uganda, if somebody commits suicide, they shame the body, apparently. They, the community will come together and 
beat up on the body for doing that oh my for doing that to them so there is a very huge discrepancy in the knowledge of what it is that this person is going through so education is key outreach is key these conversations out in the community getting the uh, professionals to educate us on a level that we understand of what it is that's happening in somebody's mind when this is going on. Um, another thing we really don't pay as much attention to is substance abuse. Mm-hmm. People of color and Africans, I will not generalize, but let me speak to the people I know, uh, my people, Rwandans. We consider alcohol a social thing. Mm-hmm. and we don't pay attention as to why somebody's drinking and the level they're drinking on. And given our history, most of us think because we are healing as a country or because we all went through it and we seem to be fine on the outside, um, usually alcohol is the first sign of what's going on inside because it helps you numb what the feelings, to get out of your feelings. And people just keep drinking and drinking. And that's socially acceptable, even to drink yourself really to nonsense. But most of the time, it's the first sign that that person does not want to deal with reality. And that's so sad that alcoholism is more accepted than actually saying, hey guys, I don't feel right in my mind, I need help. And that's why they go to that first. Uh, Since we're talking about Rwanda specifically, we know that alcoholism is a huge, huge problem. I mean, people wake up for breakfast and drink, Mm -hmm. and that's the first thing they do before they even brush their teeth. And for whatever reason, it's okay. We just, we never really question it. It's just like, oh, that person just, you know, they enjoy their liquor, whatever. It is what it is. Um, And like you said, there's such a, a huge correlation between substance abuse and mental illness oh yeah what comes what do you think is substance abuse a a reason for does it cause mental illness or a lot of times they already have the illness and they're just using uh whatever it is alcohol drugs to cope um i don't think anyone can speak to causation I don't think there's been studies that show cause of it, but like you said, a correlation mm-hmm. is key. And alcohol or drug use itself is a disorder. Um, in the DSM, substance abuse is a disorder. And it usually is in addition to another disorder. Mm. So a lot of people do turn to drugs to cope with mental illness, other different types of mental illness. Um, we do see in homelessness, if you find a lot of homeless people who have mental illness, like schizophrenia, usually because of how um, most of the drugs or the medications used to treat these illnesses have horrible, horrible side effects. Mm -hmm. And if somebody's hearing voices or seeing things, sometimes they would rather be high on something than take these medications that keep them like almost in a vegetative state or some of these medications make you gain a lot of weight or speech issues, a lot of side effects Mm -hmm. that then drug use becomes another um, go-to in in, uh, coping with these mental illnesses. With depression, some people do uppers to to feel like they have a little energy to get up. And sometimes it starts as... do what? Uh, drugs that give oh. them a little okay. energy mm-hmm. and you know like cocaine or something that gets you I'm, I'm starting way up here <laughs> I'm like whoa but, you know like cocaine <laughs> I'm like oh or we're never going to start with weed okay <laughs> or they'll do alcohol you know they'll mm-hmm. drink alcohol so they don't have to feel mm-hmm. or sit in that where your mind really is no longer your own like you know this is not who you are but you can't help it and usually when you don't know what's happening, you can't figure it out. So you want to, to numb it. Mm-hmm. And the more you numb it, the more you don't know what, what's causing what. So you just like, it's better to feel like, oh, I'm just drunk versus thinking, wow, I just feel like this. Because it's easier to explain sleeping all day as a hangover versus sleeping all day and you know nothing is wrong with you 
that you could touch or feel. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Um, let's take around Rwanda for a little bit longer. Uh, everybody knows what happened in '94. Genocide happened. These people witnessed events that nobody should ever have to win. You shouldn't even watch a movie that has that much violence, let alone, you know, live it. So it it's it's almost insane for me to think that they they thought as a country we can move forward, we can literally wake up the next day after the war and just have these people go on with their normal lives. It I mean, obviously some people we see and they, they look fine on the outside. They're Working, they're living, you know, they're they're living their life from the outside. But do you think that trauma comes out in different ways? And do you think that all those people should really be in therapy? Yes, I do. I think as a country, each and every one of us should have gone to therapy and should still. It's never too late. Um, Trauma is usually the most seen disorder or event that underlies almost all disorders Mm -hmm. you'll find bipolar borderline schizophrenia i mean name it if you talk to any client long enough there is always some kind of trauma especially childhood traumas um so for something that happened in rwanda it was not just 1994. This has been since the 50s. Oh, yeah. So we know mm-hmm. it as I already say, my favorite, I can't, I don't even know who said it, um, but trauma not transformed is trauma transferred. Mm-hmm. And we have been passing on this survival mode, including trauma and how to cope, mainly in a maladaptive way, but in a way that is needed just to survive. And that's usually not talking. As Rwandans, we don't talk about what happened. And I hear different ways of saying it is, if you can't change it, why talk about it? What good does it do to you to speak? But just talking is healing. Creating that space is healing. And that has changed tremendously, obviously, with this new generation, Mm -hmm. where they are saying, no, we need to speak about what we saw, what happened to us, losing almost everyone in your family. You can't just be the same person again. Your your life is, your biology has changed forever, not just feelings or even how your brain is made up. It's changed forever just from uh, witnessing such traumatic experiences. So as Rwandans, after the genocide, and our president has done a great job from day one, therapists started coming in. Um, And obviously, a lot of Rwandans didn't have the expertise to do the work. Mm -hmm. But I know a lot of people went in and got like a week certificate, something just to get people talking about what they saw. And that's why every April, you still see people triggered to the extent of going fully in shock or um, being hospitalized because this still lives in us. Mm. Trauma will never leave your body. It will always manifest in one way or another. And the more you push it down, the more it comes out. It finds ways to come out of you. What are some ways that trauma does... uh, What am I trying to say? What are some ways that trauma transforms transforms itself in other ways um in a lot of different ways so in that and now more more and more every when we have the quibukas most people do tell their stories of how how this kept happening until they were able to speak about it um so there of course it goes from smaller ways to really big ways Mm -hmm. and there are some smaller ways such as i guess that's not too small i was going to say sleeping habits but um I think the smallest way I can think of is how you relate to others. Um, Sometimes you'll keep that distance because you no longer trust people or you see everybody as an enemy, not because you think that, but because your brain tells you that. Mm -hmm. It has seen people do horrible things, therefore people are bad. And that's where our brains were made to keep us safe. Right. They're very primal in that sense and so primitive so if we are not consciously 
working toward knowing how we are affected by the things that we have seen or that we've experienced. Our brains are forever telling us to stay away or do certain things that don't really make sense. Um, sometimes it's sleeping habits. Uh, it will show up in physical. Some people will get physically sick and doctors cannot find why. You will have back pain forever and they can't find a single thing wrong with you physically, but that's trauma in your body trying to tell you something. Migraines. Most of us get migraines and we think, oh, I need to drink more water and you will drink for years. Your migraine will never go away. Mm. Mental issues can cause physical issues. But I believe this is just God's crazy way of making our bodies absolutely magical. That if you're not listening to your feelings, like, I'll show you something to listen to. Right. And so physical, most people will respond to a migraine if you won't respond to your mood. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other ways that are that become even more intense than where mental illness will show up in depression and suicidal ideations, hallucinations, nightmares. Some people can't sleep through the night. Mm. Um, And to this day, this is what, 23 years later, there are very many people to this day still saying they've never slept through a night ever since the channel side. Understandably so. Nobody should ever see that. And you have nightmares, sweating, um, eating habits, of course, then substance abuse, and the list goes on. Yeah, because I remember when uh, we were at the memorial and Big C, a.k.a. Chizito, gave his testimony. And mm-hmm. he said for the longest, before he actually told his story, he used to have really bad migraines. Yeah. And he couldn't figure out why and went to the doctor. Couldn't fix it until he started telling his story. They just magically disappeared. Yes. It's healing to speak your truth. Um, anger. Mm-hmm. Tempers. I remember that in his story, too. Yeah. Um, I remember somebody's testimony saying how they couldn't cry after the genocide. They just felt nothing. Nothing made them cry. Um, because, I mean, you've seen it all at that point. Yes. What? And you've not processed it. And so it just keeps bottling up and on top of each other until one day. Um, yeah. So we can't mess with these things. This is literally life and death. We have, but we have so many survivors that, that are willing to tell their story and they're more open to it. What about those survivors that, are, that just are not ready to speak? What can you do to help them open up? And opening up is different for each person. True. So not everyone is comfortable sitting, standing on a stage and telling the world what happened. And that's where I was also following this thread on Twitter. I'm new to this Twitter thing, so I'm very excited when I, fi- when I figure something out. <laughs> and it was the Rwandans, young Rwandans, talking about our culture of not being real with one another. Uh-huh. Where to the extent of... No, I can't remember the guy's name. I should give a shout out. Um, but he started a great conversation. When you're younger, you go to somebody's house and they say, would you like a drink? And you know you've been trained to say no, even when you're dying for a drink. <laughs> <laughs> and this is so key to even mental wellness, where you don't think that the person sitting across from people you call family, people you call friends, you cannot have a real conversation about the life that you and I go through, and we both know it's difficult. We both know sometimes we cry ourselves to sleep. And you show up, and I put a smile on, and I get it together, and we talk and laugh, and then you go home, and I go back to my sadness or my anxiety or my traumas by myself. So we need to start by changing the culture of making space for all of us to be real, to be normal, each normal human being goes through these emotions. Um, <laughs> That's so funny that you said that. Like, with us not allowing ourselves to have to speak about our feelings. Yeah. It just literally happened to me maybe an hour ago. I was talking to Arnold. Uh, shout out to Arnold. And we started talking, and then he was, uh, we're, you know, every conversation, random conversation, 
conversation goes, oh, Koabuze, oh, yeah, da, da, da. I tried to reach out, but you didn't reach out. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, he's like, well, if I remember correctly, I reached out to you and da, da, da. And I was like, uh, you know, just stop right there. Stop being light skinned. And that was my response. <laughs> wow. <laughs> So just being aware of little things like that yes. makes a difference. Because we've been trained. Yeah. And it's going to take us just as long to untrain ourselves into doing these horrible, horrible things <laughs> to ourselves and passing them on to our kids. It's why can't we just be, hey, so I'm really struggling with parenting or I was, you know, I'm struggling with ABC. Because you're afraid they're going to go back and talk about you. And talk about about you you or think of you differently. did you know that Tabby actually sucks at parenting, even though she does this and this and that, you know, to make us think that she's this way. Mm -hmm. So you'd rather not even allow yourself to be put in that position. And how how do we create trust? You have to know who your tribe is. So I'm not going to just tell everybody my stuff. But we don't have even those few people that we consider close. Um, I think it's uh, her work is amazing. Brene Brown, she talks about a lot about vulnerability and shame and mm-hmm. guilt and just making being your authentic self at all times and belonging. And her new book about, um, I think it's being brave in the wilderness. I'm probably killing that title, but it's about the wilderness. Anyway, just. Being yourself, like belonging, it's not about fitting in. Mm. And I think with Rwandans, we spend our lifetime trying to fit in instead of belonging. And knowing that you belong when you don't have to change a thing about yourself. And they still love you regardless. And once you find those people that you don't have to fit in, you just belong. That's when you start opening up and not and growing together. And before you find those people, you are, I feel like you still have to open yourself up in order to find where you actually belong. Oh, yeah. And you're going to get burnt oh, yeah. a few times, but it's worth, it's, it's totally worth, your, worth yeah, it. it's worth putting yourself out there and allowing yourself, yourself to be vulnerable because yes. there's power in vulnerability. Yes. There's power, there's healing, there is life, <laughs> really. And I think ultimately we all want to be able to feel vulnerable. That's what we're searching for. We're just putting on masks for God knows who, because at the end of the day, if we all allowed ourselves to remove those masks, we could be, we'll just allow ourselves to be more human. Yeah. Because our biggest longing is also our biggest fear. And so... Mm. um, Tweetable moment. (laughs) Oh, girl. (laughs) Right. So we all are longing for those friends that you can sit around and be fully yourself, no judgments, but we are also afraid of what could happen and we'll never find out till we put ourselves out there. And that realization came for me when I decided to speak out about my trauma of being a sexual assaulted as an 11 year old. My first biggest fear was, oh Lord, what will Rwandans say? Mm. And then I realized this is not about them. What will I say to myself if at the end of my lifetime, I still have this big secret? And speaking of trauma, obviously, secretly, unconsciously, that's why I went into psychology. I didn't even realize it when I chose this field, but I knew somewhere deep down, this is why I wanted to understand healing of the mind. Because no matter how many close friends I had, and we're very close as siblings, I still didn't tell anyone because I didn't know how to process that either. And when I decided to speak out about it, it wasn't even for me. And as women, as most people will do something for somebody else before they do it for themselves. Mm -hmm. So when I did it, it was to help these little girls that I saw. There were five, there were nine. And I think the 11-year-old self was just screaming out, how about me? Mm -hmm. And for me to go out and say this, and it's another reason I first spoke about it in a magazine because mm-hmm. I knew I couldn't take it back after that. It was in print. Child, <laughs> when I tell you. And I will tell you, I had a few older Rwandans email me and say, so, meaning, how is everybody going to respond to this? 
Why would you want to do that? So they're not even concerned. Oh my gosh, how are you doing? Right. It's more. What your, What is the world gonna say? Yeah. About so now family, the family name. There's a family name. There is now. There's stigma attached to you. You You are You're damaged technically goods. I'm damaged goods at eleven. Oh my! God. Like how disturbing <laughs> is this? And this is the culture we're growing what you up wearing? in. Telling each and every one of us, you just have to be a certain perfect to belong. But we're mm. really just fitting in. It's until you try to do it for you. Then you won't care just where and who reacts to what. And your people, your tribe will fall in place. And look at how many people you actually allowed to speak their truth after they heard your story. And that was something that was eye-opening, including people in Rwanda where we haven't started this work yet, but it's coming. Um, people I've known all sending messages, sending text messages like, yo, me too, literally. Yeah. Or um, I'm even struggling right now with depression and I've never told somebody or I don't know where to turn. I teachers who have assaulted kids um other uncles watch out for them uncles mm-hmm. um, <laughs> especially those that look at you and say oh you've grown keep your Gross. kids safe people trauma is real um <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i stopped worrying about what everybody else is gonna think or say or wonder and thought about what end of the day this is my life i am with me a hundred percent of the time mm-hmm. and if i'm not okay with me who cares who else is okay with me right, right. and so i want to look in the mirror i want to get to my deathbed and say i did everything i could for me and as a result everything i could for the next person i met mm. that i create that space that they can walk away also ready and able to be with themselves and be happy and and if you feel like that on your deathbed, I feel like you've done your job that God created you to do when you come on this earth. I was listening to uh, Super Soul Sunday and some guy who was on there, I forget his name. He said that his sister said that her definition of hell is it when she dies and God shows her her full potential, all the things that she could have been if she only tried a little harder, but never did. Mm -hmm. And from what you're saying, basically you're saying the same thing. You want to be able to know that you did everything that you could. Pretty much. Because even when I couldn't put a finger on my trauma, or when I didn't want to, I guess, I would have nightmares that I didn't know why. And I didn't try to figure out why. Instead, of course, I went into the work to help others who have gone through this, but not connecting with myself. Mm-hmm. I, The way I coped, luckily, mine wasn't destructive in a sense that I went to drugs or alcohol, but I kept busy. Anybody who knows me, I never have just one job. I'm usually taking more than a full load of classes mm-hmm. and a f- three or four different jobs. And I'll volunteer doing here. Okay. I'm always doing the most for real. Until recently that it occurred to me, that was my way of running away from me. Mm. If I stay busy, I can't think about, I can't sit with my feelings because I didn't want to. <laughs> uh, even when I, pret- I don't want to say pretend because I was really unconscious. I didn't know this is why I was doing what I was doing. Until I went to therapy. So as a therapist, walking into another therapist's office, oh, I was so anxious. Like, oh, Lord. Was that hard because you know exactly what the therapist is looking for? So you're, you're, you basically have this answer scripted? You think you, you do? Mm-hmm. Until you get to a good therapist. Mm. Where I literally sat down and started bawling. She didn't even say nothing. <laughs> I just knew I had been holding all like of it this. all started when right. I was 11. <laughs> She's no. like, I just asked for your She's name, like, hi. <laughs> hi. Yes. Everyone should go to therapy at least once. You don't have to have had any kind of history or some big event just for the sake of sitting across a non-judgmental person, making space for you to process 
all that has been your life to this day. You'd be surprised what's sitting inside you that you have not given time. Oh my gosh, that's so true. Because I remember we we didn't really deal with mom's death very yes. well. We didn't really grieve. Like we didn't allow ourselves to grieve, especially for me because things just kept happening back to back. I she passed away, and then literally like a month later, I had surgery. I had my appendix taken out, which was, that was my first time ever even spending a night in the hospital. So that was crazy. And then I get pregnant right after that. So I'm dealing with all of this stigma that comes with having a child out of wedlock and da, da 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 And then I remember like my son was two. It's almost like that's when I had a moment to myself to even think like, mm. what just happened? You know, like what just happened the past three years? And... That I had my anxiety attack mm-hmm. during that time, and I was like, "Whoa, this is white people stuff. What's happening?" <laughs> You're getting weak. <laughs> yeah, like, I'm getting weak. Uh, uh-uh, Mama didn't raise me like this. Like, I'm no, you know, because you know, if my mom, if mom was here, she would say, "That's actually what kept me going." Whenever I'd feel like I'm about to break down, I would hear her voice like, "You're not the first one to go through this." Right. Pushed through. <laughs> that that was, those were her comforting <laughs> words. <laughs> so, you know, I was just saying, mm, Mama didn't, you know, like she told us we got to push through no matter what. And then I had my anxiety attack and I had another one. And I was like, okay, WTF, what's going on? And I went to the doctor, you know, like right. you said, black people just go to the doctor because I'm, I'm like, maybe, yeah, like something's wrong with my heart. I don't know what's happening. And like you said, I literally, she walked in and she said, how are you? And I cried like a baby. <laughs> and she's like, oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. And Wrong like, place. <laughs> and she's like, what's going on? And she was great, gracious enough to listen. And after she listened, she was like, you really needed to get that out. And I think that that's what's causing your anxiety. Mm-hmm. And you need to, she was like, you need to find somebody to talk to. And I was like, oh, I think I'm good. You know, we just had this talk. It's all good. <laughs> you got I never had. And, and, you know, she didn't push any pills down. She just, she realized that I, was, I never dealt with the grief. And yeah. she just, she was like, okay. She's like, I don't think you need anything. You know, if you're up to it, go see a therapist. But you really need to find a way to grieve. And after that, I was like, well, I never actually did grieve, you know, not that I look back. I'm like, I never allowed myself to feel any type of pain because you just pushed through. Yeah. And that was part of my therapy too, was the mm-hmm. grieving part. I remember at not even the funeral, it was the day before we're at home and I think they were singing a sad song or something mm-hmm. and I started bawling, just losing it. And this Rwandan mother comes up to me and gets my hand, moves me to the bedroom like, don't do this here oh. and i'm thinking the okay nerve. where else can i freaking cry for my mom <laughs> but at her funeral in my house go to the bathroom right like hide that ish like nobody needs to see your tears really people you gotta laugh at these things it is sad it is so sad and so i hope we do better and we keep just changing the narrative for the next generation that we are human. We are not beyond feelings, emotions. This is normal. Um, so yes, the same way, if we get nothing else out of this podcast, each and every one of us gets a physical once a year. We need the same mental checkup once a year. Mm-hmm. With a therapist you trust, I recommend somebody your own with a background that you can relate to. Because finding the right therapist is so key in healing. And if you don't vibe, walk out. You're paying way too much. (laughs) Seriously, it doesn't matter how good they are, what kind of education they have. If you don't vibe with a therapist, you're not going to get what you need. Mm. Um, Get checked. Just just get support. How do we introduce therapy to our parents? I feel like our generation, we're more open to it. How do we introduce that to our parents? Because you know they need it. Yeah, I kind of don't have a lot of hope for, <laughs> <laughs> for the older generation. Dang. I mean, they've been through so much, and it's hard to teach new tricks to, <laughs> right? Is that what they say? Yeah, to an old dog. To but... An old... but I don't know. A lot of them, if we... 
I think if we introduce it from a medical perspective, they're more likely to listen than <laughs> from an emotional perspective. Like just instill some fear in them. If right. You go see okay. a therapist. You might you have a brain a tumor. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> brain cancer? Eh, 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 no, I'm eh, make that appointment <laughs> tomorrow. I will go. <laughs> yes. Um, and I think, I think it's important to have somebody, like I said, who has the same background. So if mm-hmm. he, they found an older, same generation kind of therapist who's an immigrant, because um, some of the little nuances are so key to getting your, to, to getting your voice hard and to feel like you understood. Um, yeah, I don't know about our parents. <laughs> um, but I think they also find healing in their circles, you know, because mm-hmm, therapy mm-hmm. is kind of new to our cultures. Mm-hmm. We've had different ways of healing, and it's not always therapy. So that's what I think that's where we went off the tangent of finding your tribe. A lot of our people lived in communal spaces, right? Where they have they believe in going to their elders mm-hmm. for advice or to be heard, and they believe in that kind of communication of community, churches, song and dance, um, artists. They heal in creating something that tells their story. Mm-hmm. And I think that was also the question about, well, what if people are not ready to talk? There's mm-hmm. all different kinds of outlets. People write poetry. All art is really somebody's way of bringing their mm-hmm. inner self mm-hmm. outside. Mm-hmm. Um, so some people are better at drawing, and they will draw all day and feel just as healed as talking. Mm-hmm. I'm a talker, as obviously. Um but some people maybe are more creative and they'll make a song. All these sad songs we play at breakups, that is somebody's story. <laughs> some find a way to make money out of their therapy. Right. Um, yeah. So everybody, you do what it is that helps you get your inner self to the outside world. Mm. And like you said, our generation is more open and they're, they're being outspoken. I know you're the admin right now for that Rwandan group on Twitter? Yes, they've added me to answer or speak to it, if anybody. What are some of the things that people have been opening about? Oh, I'm so proud of our people. Um, There's a young lady who opened about her, I think, I believe she said bipolar. Ended up being bipolar, but started out just as fatigue and not being able to focus in class, and she was a type A personality. So that was really difficult for her. And then all the way to suicidal ideations and attempts and until finally they were able to figure out what it is. Um, and of course, most people didn't understand. And But just being brave enough to share that story on a platform like Twitter has, I'm sure, has opened doors for a lot of people going through exactly what she went through or still going through. Uh, to understand another lady opened up about postpartum depression and that is one of the hardest ones because of societal pressures mm-hmm. as a woman as a mother a new mother at that and then dealing with something like depression you feel like you're a failure on all fronts like why can't i just love my child or i mean and you're already you feel like you're going crazy because your hormones are so out of whack yes. during that time. Yeah. So to add on depression, yeah. I can't even imagine. And when you add that on in a community that doesn't understand it, mm-hmm. and then they're condemning you for <laughs> what you're already suffering. Right. I can't even, I mean, kudos to each and everyone who has been sharing because that is so difficult. And that is really the true example of how far we've come as a society then now we're able to say that. And so far, all the comments I've been seeing have been supportive. Like, Good. thank you for sharing. Oh, I hope you're okay. I hope you're better. And I'm like, yes, we have come so far. Oh and God, I'm so excited. God. I'm so excited for the people who started this conversation. So that no more, no, more people can not keep suffering in silence. And everybody's just always waiting for one person to say, yo, this is real. I validate what you're feeling because mm-hmm. I've been there. And that's all we all need in life. Just with any validation. Yes. Right. I see you. We see you. <laughs> we see each other. Mm-hmm. And I mean that's where it all starts because really if you if you speak up, get the help you need, you can live a relatively normal life. Yeah, best depending on which 
disorder. Some of them, you know, you like back to normal if you get the right help at the right time. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, of course, there is chronic mental illness, so you're going to have to take medications for the rest of your life. But life goes on. So it's pretty not, normal. It's not the end of the world. It's never. Nothing is until breath is you're not breathing. Every day is an opportunity. Well, Dr. Tabby. <laughs> you and those titles. <laughs> you know Africans are all about titles. <laughs> when I do get it, I'll be back. <laughs> but yeah, thank you so much. Like, seriously, I- I'm glad that we talked about this in the most sincere way. Because I feel like that's something we're, we we need to work on as Africans, as a Rwandan community. We, can't, we just, let's be real, people. Stop with the fakery. Just be real. Allow yourself to be vulnerable. Thank you for opening our eyes. Thank you for discussing this. Hopefully, we can continue to have this conversation. And um, for those of you listening, if you hear this and you have any questions for Tabby, you can always reach out. What are your social media platforms that they can reach out to you? Facebook, Instagram. I'm new at Twitter, so I'm there, but... Yeah. Still trying to figure it out. I'm trying to figure it out. (laughs) What's your name on Instagram? uh, Tabitha M underscore K. Girl, get (laughs) it together. (laughs) I I don't know. Something like that. It's Tabitha Kaguri. Are you more active on Facebook? Yes. Okay. That I'm on it. Okay. What's your Facebook? Old people stuff. (laughs) Um, It's Tabitha Kaguri on Facebook. Yeah, that's you and dad. Shush. Yes, and I think on Twitter I am at at Tabitha MK. Tabitha MK, reach out to her for some free therapy. I don't know about that. <laughs> or on a discount, you know, she got you. <laughs> but yes. on a, on all seriousness, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge. This is what we need, and I hope that you continue to do this in our community because we need more therapists. So you need to be recruiting the younger generation to get in your field and for those of you listening thanks for tuning in until next time you've been listening to ipu podcast you can follow ipu podcast on instagram if you haven't yet please go to apple podcast and subscribe rate and review this podcast join us next week for another inspiring story follow your passion it will lead you to your purpose As always, thanks for listening. Until next time.